Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you are listening to this, hello. My name is Keith Roberson and you are listening to I Pray This Helps. Right now we are in a series um, reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I love this book. I have not finished this book. So in many ways we are taking this journey together. But the things that I have read thus far over the years <laughs> um, have been very thought provoking and, and it makes you just really want to say, look, you should read this. Um, you should have this information. And I know that not everyone is a reader. Um, um, you should be able to read. But even with that said, people that can read aren't readers all the time. And sometimes you want them to have some information, but you got to put it into a form where it might be readily available to them or in a way in which they would want to consume it. And so here's another way to do that to a person that wouldn't necessarily read this book. I want to be able to walk through this book with you guys. There's not really much for me to say outside of reading the book. Um, as he goes into it and he talks about it is really self-explanatory. I'll disagree where I believe that I should disagree, but I don't believe that there is a lot to disagree on thus far. It's a really, really great book, and it's not speaking to one one denomination of Christianity. He's just speaking about Christianity at his bare bones. And that's really what I love about the book. A part of what I love about the book is no additives, <laughs> no um, additional things, no no um, unnecessary doctrine or anything like that. Um, it's just bare bones Christianity and it's properly named mere Christianity. Um, so we read book one, chapter one and two last week. This week, we're going to read three and four and possibly five. So if you see the title, you'll see how far we got along in the book. Um, but uh, I do want to start us off with some prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for everyone under the sound of my voice. Everyone listening to this, if they're in their car, if they're at their job, if they're running, if they're um, working out somewhere, if um, they gave this to someone else to listen to, we pray that he who has an ear that he hears. Lord, we pray that um, this wouldn't just be something to pass the time, but this would really to be be something that we can devour and put in our hearts, not only in our minds, but in our hearts and in our spirits. So, Lord, be with us as we journey through this book. We love you and we praise you and we glorify you. It is in Jesus's mighty and matchless name we do pray. Amen. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Book one, chapter three. The reality of the law. I now go back to what I said at the end of the first chapter, that there were two odd things about the human race. First, that they were haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior they ought to practice, what you might call fair play, or decency, or morality, or the law of nature. 
Second, that they did not, in fact, do so. Now, some of you may wonder why I called this odd. It may seem to you the most natural thing in the world. In particular, you may have thought I was rather hard on the human race. After all, you may say, what I call breaking the law of right and wrong or of nature only means that people are not perfect. And why on earth should I expect them to be? That would be a good answer if what I was trying to do was fix the exact amount of blame which is due to us for not behaving as we expect others to behave. But that is not my job at all. I am not concerned at present with blame. I'm trying to find out truth. And from what that point of view, the very idea of something being imperfect, of it's not being what it ought to be, has certain consequences. If you take a thing like a stone or a tree, it is what it is, and there seems to, seems no sense in saying it ought to have been otherwise. Of course, you may say a stone is the wrong shape if you want to use it for a rockery. Or that a tree is a bad tree because it does not give you as much shade as you expected. But all you seem, but all you mean is that the stone or the tree does not happen to be convenient for some purpose of your own. You are not, except as a joke, blaming, blaming them for that. You really know that given the weather and the soil, the tree could not have been any different. What we, from our point of view, call a bad tree is obeying the laws of its nature just as much as a good one. Now you have noticed what follows. It follows that what we usually call the laws of nature the way weather works on a tree, for example, may not really be laws in the strict sense, but only in a manner of speaking. When you say that falling stones always obey the law of gravitation, is not this much the same as saying that the law only means what stones always do? You do not really think that when a stone is let go, it suddenly remembers that it is under orders to fall to the ground. You only mean that in fact it does fall. In other words, you cannot be sure that there is anything over and above the facts themselves, any law about what ought to happen, as distinct from what does happen. The laws of nature, as applied to stones or trees, may only mean what nature in fact does. But if you turn to the law of human nature, the law of decent behavior, it is a different matter. That law certainly does not mean what human beings in fact do. For as I said before, many of them do not obey this law at all, and none of them obey it completely. The law of gravity tells you what stones do if you turn them, if you drop them. But the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. In other words, when you are dealing with humans, something else comes in above and beyond the actual facts. You have the facts. How men do behave. 
And you also have something else, how they ought to behave. And the rest of the universe there need not be anything but the facts. Electrons and molecules behave in a certain way and certain results follow. And that may be the whole story. But men behave in a certain way. And that is not the whole story. For all the time, you know that they ought to behave differently. Now, this is really so peculiar that one is tempted to try to explain it away. For instance, we might try to make out that when you say a man ought not to act as he does, you only mean the same as when you say that a stone is the wrong shape. Namely, that what he is doing happens to be inconvenient to you. But that is simply untrue. A man occupying the corner seat in the train because he got there first and a man who slipped into it while my back was turned and removed my bag are both equally inconvenient. But I blame the second man and do not blame the first. I am not angry except perhaps for a moment before I come to my senses with the man who trips me up by accident. I am angry with the man who tries to trip me up even if he does not succeed. Yet, the first has hurt me and the second has not. Sometimes the behavior, which I call bad, is not inconvenient to me at all, but the very opposite. In war, each side may find a traitor on the other side every very useful. But though they use him and pay him, they regard him as human vermin. So you cannot say that what we call decent behavior in others is simply the behavior that happens to be useful to us. And as for decent behavior in ourselves, I suppose it is pre pretty obvious that it does not mean the behavior that pays. It means, some, it means things like being content with 30 shillings when you might have got three pounds, doing schoolwork honestly when it would be easy to cheat, leaving a girl alone when you would like to make love to her, staying in dangerous places when you would rather go somewhere safer, keeping promises you would rather not keep, and telling the truth even when it makes you look like a fool. Some people say that, though decent conduct does not mean what pays each particular person at a particular moment, still it means what pays the human race as a whole, and that consequently, there is no mystery about it. Human beings, after all, have some sense. They see that you cannot have a real safety or happiness except in a society where everyone plays fair. And it is because they see this that they try to behave decently. Now, of course, it is perfectly true that safety and happiness can only come from individuals, classes, and nations being honest and fair and kind to each other. It is one of the most important truths in the world. But as an explanation of why we feel as we do about right and wrong, it just misses the point. If we ask, why ought I to be use unselfish? And you reply, because it is good for society. We may then ask, why should I share? Why should I care what's good for society except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, 
because you ought to be unselfish, which simply brings us back to where we started. You are saying what is true, but you are not getting any further. If a man asks what was the point of playing football, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game. And you would really only be saying that football was football. Which is true, but not worth saying. In the same way, if a man asks what is the point of behaving decently, it is no good replying in order to benefit society. For trying to benefit society, in other words, being unselfish, unselfish for society, after all, only means other people, is one of the things decent behavior consists in. All you are really saying is that decent behavior is decent behavior. You would have said just as much if you had stopped at the statement, men ought to be unselfish. And that is where I do stop. Men ought to be unselfish, ought to be fair. Not that men are unselfish, not that they like being unselfish, but that they ought to be. The moral law or law of human nature is not simply a fact about human behavior in the same way as the law of gravitation is or may be. Simply a fact about how heavy objects behave. On the other hand, it is not a mere fancy for we cannot get rid of the idea and most of the things we say and think about men would be reduced to nonsense if we did. And it is not simply a statement about how we should like men to behave for our own convenience. For the behavior we call bad or unfair is not exactly the same as the behavior we find inconvenient. It may even be the opposite. Consequently, this rule of right and wrong or law of human nature or whatever you call it must somehow or other be a real thing, a thing that is really there not made up by ourselves, and yet it is not a fact in the ordinary sense, in the same way as our actual behavior is a fact. It begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality, that in this particular case, there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior, and yet quite definitely real, a real law, which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. Chapter 4 What Lies Behind the Law Let us sum up what we have reached so far. In the case of stones and trees and things of that sort, what we call the laws of nature may not be anything except a way of speaking. When you say that nature is governed by certain laws, this may only mean that nature does, in fact, behave in a certain way. The so-called laws may not be anything real, anything above and beyond the actual facts which we observe. But in the case of man, we say that this will not do. The law of human nature, or of right and wrong, must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. In this case, besides the actual facts, you have something else. A real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. I now want to consider what this tells us about the universe we live in. 
Ever since men were able to think that they had been wandering, wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be there. And very roughly, two views have been held. First, there is what is called the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist and always have existed. Nobody knows why. And that the matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by some sort of fluke. To produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. And by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of those planets. And so some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. The other view is the religious view. According to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious and has purposes and prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe, partly for purposes we do not know, but partly at any rate in order to produce creatures like itself. I mean like itself to the extent of having minds. Please do not think that one of these views was held a long time ago and that the other has gradually taken its place. Wherever there have been thinking men, both views turn up. And note this too. You cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. Every scientific statement in the long run, however complicated it looks, really means something like, I pointed the telescope to such and such a part of the sky at 2.20 a.m. on January 15th and saw so-and-so, or I put some of this stuff in a pot and heated it to such and such a temperature and it did so-and-so. Do not think I am saying anything against science. I am only saying what his job is. And the more scientific a man is, the more, I believe, he would agree with me that this is the job of science. And a very useful and necessary job it is too. But why anything comes to be there at all and whether there is anything behind the things science observes, something of a different kind. This is not a scientific question. If there is something behind, then there it will have to remain altogether unknown to men or else make itself known in some different way. The statement that there is anything such, and the statement that there is no such thing, are neither of them statements that science can make. And real scientists do not usually make them. It is usually the journalists and popular novelists who have picked up a few odds and ends of half-baked science from textbooks who go in for them. After all, it is really a matter of common sense. Supposing science ever became a complete so that it knew every single thing in the whole universe. Is it not plain that the questions, why is there a universe... Why does it go on as it does? Has it any meaning will remain just as they were? Now, the 
position would be quite hopeless but for this. There is one thing, and only one, in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, we are men. In this case, we have, so to speak, inside information. We are in the know. And because of that, we know that men find themselves under a moral law, which they did not make and cannot quite forget even when they try, in which they know they ought to obey. Notice the following point. Anyone studying man from the outside as we study electricity or cabbages, not knowing our language and consequently not able to get any inside knowledge from us, but merely observing what we did, would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law. How could he? For his observations would only show what we did, and the moral law is about what we ought to do. In the same way, if there were anything above or behind the observed facts in the case of stones or the weather, we, by studying them from outside, could never hope to discover it. The position of the question, then, is like this. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. There is only one case in which we know whether there is anything more, namely our own case. And in that one case, we find there is, or put it the other way around. If there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. And that is just what we do find in ourselves. Surely this ought to arouse our suspicion. In the only case where you can expect to get an answer, the answer turns out to be yes. And in the other cases where you do not get an answer, you see why you do not. Suppose someone asks me, when I see a man in a blue uniform going down the street, leaving little paper packets at each house, why I suppose that they contain letters? I should reply, because whenever he leaves a similar little packet for me, I find it does contain a letter. And if he then objected, but you've never seen all these letters which you think the other people are getting, I should say, of course not. And I shouldn't expect to because they're not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the ones I am allowed to open. It is the same about this question. The only packet I am allowed to open is man. When I do, especially when I open that particular man called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own, that I am under a law, that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. I do not, of course, think that if I could get inside a stone or a tree, I should find exactly the same thing, just as I do not think all the other people in the street get the same letters as I do. 
I should expect, for instance, to find that the stone had to obey the law of gravity, that whereas the sender of the letters merely tells me to obey the law of my human nature, he compels the stone to obey the laws of its stony nature. But I should expect to find that there was, so to speak, a sender of letters in both cases, a power behind the facts, a director, a guide. Do not think I am going faster than I really am. I am not yet within a hundred miles of the God of Christian theology. All I have got to is a something which is directing the universe and which appears to me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. Because after all, the only because after all, the only other thing we know is matter, and you can hardly imagine a bit of matter getting instructions. But of course, it need not be very like a mind, still less like a person. In the next chapter, we shall see if we can find out anything more about it. But one word of warning: there has been a great deal of soft soap talked about God for the last hundred years. That is not what I am offering. You can cut all that out. Note, in order to keep this section short enough when it was given in on the air, I mentioned only the materialist view and the religious view. But to be complete, I ought to mention the in-between view called life force philosophy or creative evolution or emergent evolution. The wittiest expositions of it come in the works of Bernard Shaw, but the most profound ones in those of Bergson. People who hold this view say that the small variations by which life on this planet evolved from the lowest forms of man were not due to chance, but to the striving or purpose or, or purposiveness of a life force. When people say this, they may ask them whether by life force they mean something with a mind or not. If they do, then a mind bringing life into existence and leading it to perfection is really a God, and their view is thus identical with the religious. If they do not, then what is the sense of saying in saying that something without a mind strives or has purposes? This seems to me fatal to their view. One reason why many people find creative evolution so attractive is that it gives one much of an emotional, emotional comfort of believing in God and none of the less pleasant consequences. When you are feeling fit and the sun is shining and you do not want to believe that the whole universe is a mere mechanical dance of atoms, it is nice to be able to think of this mysterious force rolling on through the centuries and carrying you on its crest. If, on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, the life force being only a blind force with no morals and no mind will never interfere with you like that troublesome God we learned about when we were children. The life force is a sort of tame God. You can switch it on when you want, but it will not bother you. All the thrills of religion and none of the costs. Is the life force the greatest achievement of wishful thinking the world has yet seen? And thus ends chapter four. 
thank you guys for bearing with my stumbles on this on this episode i really appreciate you guys um continuing to to walk with me through this book i pray that it is blessing you i pray that um you are seeing some similarities with what happened when C.S. Lewis was um, um, alive and kicking with today. Um, even just the talk of the life force and how people are really um, spurred on by the universe and energy and things of that nature. Like if you're basically at the end of the chapter, he's saying like, look, if if these things that people are just saying like, well, this and that is making this happen. But they're saying like, but it doesn't have a mind, but it, it it has purpose and it has and it strives and it makes things happen. It can't do that without some type of a mind. And if it has some type of a mind that is able to do that, then it is some type of a God. And, um, you know, um, so, yeah, I think that this book is still just as um, as um, poignant as it was back then, um, as, as it was when C.S. Lewis was, um, making these statements and claims on his, uh, on his, um, radio show. But, um, thank you guys. Tune in next week. I will be here. I promise. Let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Um, I pray that, um, may the, may the Lord be with you and may heaven shine upon you. Grace and peace be unto you. (laughs) 